coming up on Economics Explored. Treasury would, um, you know, would like to argue that they keep a pretty close eye on agencies spending all the time. Um, I think you can always keep a closer eye. I mean, I think, you know, governments are just so big um, that I think you need to run them, you know, both as a minister and at a public service level. You, you really want to kind of keep your finger on the pulse all the time. There will be something bubbling along um, that government has been doing a little bit unnecessarily because that's just what it's always been doing. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 96 on managing government budgets. This is always an important topic, but it will become even more important in the next couple of decades as governments deal with the huge debts they have run up during the pandemic. This episode, I'm privileged to be joined by the Honourable Rachel Nolan, a former Minister for Finance in the Queensland State Government. If you're unfamiliar with Queensland, it's the third largest state of Australia with a population of 5.2 million. So it's around the same size as South Carolina in the US or British Columbia in Canada. Currently, Rachel is Executive Director of the McKell Institute and is an Honorary Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Queensland. Rachel was a member of the Queensland Parliament for 11 years from 2001 when she was elected as the youngest woman ever. She is a former Minister for Finance, Transport and Natural Resources in the Arts. Rachel was a member of the Queensland Government's Central Budgetary Decision-Making Body, the Cabinet Budget Review Committee. In other words, She's a great person to chat with about government budget management. This is one of the longest interviews I've done so far, and I probably could have chatted with Rachel for a lot longer. In this conversation, I focused on the mechanics or process of government budget decision-making. In a future episode, I'll aim to cover principles for long-run budget management or fiscal sustainability, which are incredibly important, but which... uh, we didn't get around to in this episode. I've previously chatted a bit about fiscal sustainability though with a previous podcast guest, Joe Brannigan, and I'll put a link to that conversation in the show notes. Before we get onto my conversation with Rachel, let me once again thank those listeners who've sent in questions, comments or suggestions. I've had some good feedback on my recent episodes on BS jobs and nuclear energy, which I'll cover in a future episode. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode that uh, you're listening to at the moment or some other recent episodes, then please send them to me via email. The email address is contact at economicsexplored.com. This stage, I'm hoping to have prominent Australian economist Nicholas Gruen back on the program soon to discuss a great comment he made related to the BS Jobs episode. This was the last episode in which I had a chat with my colleague Tim Hughes about David Graeber's controversial 2018 book on BS jobs and Nicholas commented that what struck him about David Graeber's BS jobs article and book was the absence of any economic underpinnings. Perhaps today we'd call them micro foundations as Nicholas wrote. We'll discuss this in an upcoming episode. I'm also planning to chat with Nicholas about a Financial Times article He wrote a couple of months ago on central bank digital currencies. So look out for my chat with Nicholas in an upcoming episode. Righto, now for my conversation with Rachel Nolan of the McKell Institute. I hope you enjoy it. Rachel Nolan, thanks for joining me on the program. Thanks for having me, Jean. It's a pleasure, Rachel. Uh, I thought it would be good for us to chat about this general topic of managing government budgets, particularly in this time of pandemic when we've seen massive deficits around the world, governments going into lots more debt. And we know that eventually, sometime down the track, there there probably will have to be some hard decisions made by governments around the world and to, to, uh, to get their budgets back on track. That being the nature of debt. Yes, absolutely. So 
I thought it'd be good for us to have this conversation given that you're actually someone who has really been in the cockpit. So you, You've been a minister in the Queensland state government, so that's the state of Australia we're recording in. Brisbane is the capital where, where we are. And you've been in the those in the room you've you've been there making decisions or with that group that core group making decisions so I'd like to speak with you about that today before we get on to that could you just tell us a bit about your story so how did you get to to that position and and where are you now look the, the simple way that I, I put this is that I have this long association with the Queensland Treasury in that um one of my first grown-up jobs when I was in my early 20s was as a junior policy advisor to a to a state treasurer. Um, so I, I, my first interaction with the treasurer was um, in the Queensland context as an AO4, which is not a particularly senior person. And my last engagement with the Queensland Treasury was sort of 15 or so years later as the finance minister. Um, and I've kind of done lots of things in between. So the, the bigger story of that is that um, I studied, um, I have a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Queensland. Um, I studied a lot of economics as part of that. So I have a long-standing sort of interest in economic policy. Um, I, as I said, was a political advisor, became an MP when I was 26, representing my hometown, Ipswich. Um, and through a reasonably lengthy career in state parliament, always retained, an, you know, always sat on the Treasury Committee, always retained an interest in economic policy issues. Um, as a minister became first transport minister and hopefully I like to think was a reasonably reforming transport minister and from that was promoted into being minister for finance. So at that point um, sat alongside the treasurer and the premier and usually one other minister as part of what we call the cabinet budget review committee. So that the cabinet committee that runs the budget process. Um, and I now, and I'm making this a kind of longer story than I meant to, but um, I now teach sometimes with Eugene um, how budget processes run um, back through the University of Queensland, our alma mater, um, to uh, foreign governments, often the government of Indonesia and other governments in Southeast Asia. So that's the kind of long story of, uh, you know, starting out as a young pup and um, then, as you say, sort of sitting in the cockpit of, of running the budget process. Yes, yes. And you're also the executive director of the McKell Institute, which is a public policy think tank here in Australia. What's the general mission of McKell? Look, I like to say that, that we are, uh, and this sounds pretty generic, but um, devoted to coming up with the sort of next set of big ideas for um, for a more equal but also a more prosperous Australia. Um, the, the backstory on that is that – so McKell – the McKell Institute has existed in Australia for about a decade, um, only in Queensland for a couple of years, so it's reasonably new here. But its, it's genesis is, um, as your Australian listeners will know, you know, there was a quite extraordinary period of – public policy development in Australia um, under the Hawke and Keating government, so through the 80s and 90s, um, which started with um, a thing called the Accord, which was um, essentially government, the business community and the union movement sitting down together in a cooperative manner to decide what is the next set of big ideas, largely for economic reform in this country. Um, and the McKell Institute essentially seeks to replicate that model. So um, we don't have individual members, we have... Um, corporate members, union union members, other not-for-profit members. We bring those, um, I guess, politically or philosophically diverse groups together um, around a table in both closed and open functions, um, often with ministers, senior public servants and others. And the idea is that in that intelligent and cooperative forum, we talk about the challenges that are facing the country. Um, right now we talk about a pandemic, among other things, um, we also have our own research base, um, but we are focused, you know, like the Accord, which I mentioned, we are focused on economic policy issues um, and we are seeking to, in a sensible and cooperative manner, to come up with um, a genuine reform agenda um, for both our federal and state governments. That's good. And it, it seems that you, your institute appears very open-minded because you had that, I remember I went to one of your functions last year at Parliament House on the the terrace there overlooking the gardens. It was a terrific event with the drinks on the, the, the <laughs> there balcony. Were, there were other reasons why it was good. But yes, 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 that was really good. <laughs> but you had a, a wide variety of people there. It wasn't just all people from the same sort of 
political, they weren't all of the same political persuasion. You had a wide range of people there, which I thought was really terrific. That is important to us. You know, I mean, I'm a, um, you know, I'm a former Labor MP. Um, you know, that's very well known. Um, but we're not a partisan institute uh, and we are seeking to, look, we're, we're not putting genuine flat earthers around the table, but we are um, seeking to bring together people of goodwill from, mm. uh, I think it's fair to say, broadly across the political spectrum because there are lots of things around which we can agree. Um, you know, I'm just horrified that, um, I mean, fortunately Australia has not gone kind of all the way down the American path, but, you know, the idea that over time our politics is becoming um, more divisive and more partisan I think is kind of exactly the wrong thing. I don't think that we should pretend that there aren't, you know, really deep and genuine policy differences. Um, there should be. You know, we're not running a, a sort of centrist one-party state. Mm. Um, but it's pretty clear what some of our challenges are. You know, climate change is one of our challenges. Um, having an educated workforce in an increasingly competitive world is one of our challenges. Um, right now, you know, seeking to be an open economy um, when the pandemic is is encouraging a sort of an isolationism is one of our challenges. Uh, I think I said climate change and if I didn't, I meant to. Um, you know, tax reform as we going forward do have a really serious level of debt um, will be one of our challenges. You know, we know what some of the fundamental issues are and we don't have to agree on the solution, but I think Australia is better off if we can at least have civilised and constructive conversations about those things and that's what we're seeking to do. Good stuff. And just before we move on, I should ask, who was Mikel, by the way? William Mikel, this is like being on Philip Adams' program. He always <laughs> asks, you know, who is the chair named after? Um, so uh, William Mikel was um, a, uh, a Labor Premier of New South Wales um, coming into the Second World War and ultimately became quite a successful and well-regarded Governor-General of this country and was a, was a sort of um, sensible and centrist reformer. Um, and so the Institute started in New South Wales, so he's much better known in Sydney circles. But that, um, you know, we're not sort of mad revolutionaries. You know, that sort of – Mikel is notable because he um, did manage to achieve quite significant uh, – reform that was directed towards equality, for instance, you know, real improvements in public housing in New South Wales, but he was also um, well regarded, I think, across the, the board. And that's what we're, you know, we're not saying we're not into reform, we are into reform, but we're also, um, you know, seeking to be inclusive rather than divisive. So okay. he's, therefore, he's the person for us. <laughs> okay. So your think tank, your institute will be putting forward proposals for different policies and some of them will have spending implications, implications for the budget. And so these are possibly proposals that could be considered by the Treasury or the Finance Ministry that governments will be looking at and including in a budget. Could you just give us a, a sense of how do governments, how do they actually assess all of these different spending proposals that come their way? What considerations do they take into account and, and how do they actually develop these budgets? I mean, we're talking about huge amounts of money. Australian government spending, uh, what is it, over $500 billion or something, it's huge. The US government, I mean, we're talking trillions of dollars. In, uh, in the last year, I think it was 2020, total US government outlays, $6.6 trillion dollars. Right now, that's boosted that's right. by COVID, <laughs> but uh, in the in twenty nineteen, four point four trillion. So huge amounts of money. How do you actually? How do governments figure out what to put in the budget and and how to weigh up the you know how the competing proposals? Well, there's a bit of duking it out, um, but it's it's kind of in a civilized way, I guess. Um, look, the way so when I was the Queensland Finance Minister, the um, the state budget was about $50 billion, so hardly on the US scale, but still, you know, a pretty fair chunk of money. Um, so I'll give you both a sort of process answer to that um, and then a sort of priorities answer to, to that. Um, the way the state budget process works, um, and I think this is fairly, you know, obviously there'll be variations in different jurisdictions, but the, the guts of it are kind of the same. 
um, are that a budget process runs for up to about six months before a budget. Uh, It starts, the first step is that uh, different government agencies prepare, in the first instance, their short-form bids, um, and they are expected to come to the table of the Cabinet Budget Review Committee, which I described before, so that the subcommittee of Cabinet runs this process. Um, They're expected to roll up with um, spending measures and savings measures. Um, The spending measures, of course, are, you know, the new programs, the new things they want to do. So in state government, when I was there, there were um, 18 ministers, 18 portfolios, 18 sets of spending and saving measures um, as you and that the process is moderated by um, obviously the four key ministers around the table but everything that before it gets to that table also has to um, have treasury have a look at it um, not surprisingly um, all of those agencies turn up with um, some pretty ambitious spending measures and some pretty weak need saving measures you know that is the kind of fundamental frustration of government so we go through a short form bids process in which um, the cabinet budget review committee will tell most of them to take those spending measures and go away Um, but we'll we'll pick a few priorities which they will then come back into a second round with longer form more detailed submissions so that's the and then the cabinet budget review committee as a group will decide what can be funded in the budget and what can't. So obviously the vast majority of this stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. Mm. Um, You know, it will always be the case. You you know at the start of the budget process essentially what your, you know, what the parameters are, what the funding envelope is. It may well be the case that we know we've got half a billion dollars extra to spend this year and so those, those 18 agencies are fighting for that to be their thing, um, but sometimes you know, I was um, a uh, I was a minister, became a minister in the immediate wake of the global financial crisis. You know, in which case uh, it's much more about where can we save than it is about what new thing will we spend money on. Um, you know, so there are those sort of broad priorities. And then the question becomes, well, okay, so that's the process. But your question is really more, how do you actually decide? Yeah, we might keep on the process because okay. I think this is really interesting. Now, you talk about a, a funding envelope. So now the fundamental problem is you've got all these agencies developing proposals and you might have the housing department develop proposals to build, uh, a, I don't know, a couple of thousand new units of public housing and that costs X million dollars or hundreds of mi- tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, whatever. And you'll have the health department saying, well, we need a new hospital in uh, – in Rockhampton or wherever, and then you'd have uh, you know various other departments with their own spending spending desires. And if you added them all up, you would get possibly like ten times what you can actually Look, spend. Probably on. more, and you do yeah. add them up. So right at the beginning of the budget yeah. process, um, the what we call the under treasurer, so the public servant in charge of the the treasury, will say you know because all this stuff will have gone through treasury. So the under treasurer will sit around the cabinet table and uh, advise the ministers who form the cabinet budget review committee that um, through this process uh, we are expecting $20 billion worth of bids um, and these agencies are offering up $200 million worth of savings. Um, and so you do you do know at the beginning and, and, you know, as I said, we might identify that we've got realistically – you know, if we don't change, if we don't significantly increase taxes and we don't significantly, you know, if we don't run a big uh, efficiency dividend across agencies, for instance, to get some savings, you know, we'll know, for instance, that we've got 50, uh, sorry, half a billion dollars to play with. So you do have those broad parameters at mm. the beginning of the process. They shift inevitably um, as the process um progresses you know you might find in Queensland we rely on in the budget quite significantly for instance on um, coal royalties so you might be running a six-month budget process and you might get word halfway through it that the international coal price has uh, has dropped and therefore um, 
you know, $100 million has fallen out of your budget and now your spending envelope is smaller. So there are real, there are very much shifting goalposts, but um, the point of that sort of complicated response was to say, yes, you do have a sense at the start of what is the broad envelope in which you're working. Yeah. So I remember when I was in budget policy division in the Australian Treasury, there was a process we had, I think it was every week, uh, we'd send out a spreadsheet to all the different teams in Treasury that were dealing with the different agencies. It was called measures and pressures and we'd collate all of the different, well, we'd, we'd keep track of measures that had been announced since the last budget so we know like we've got an update of what the budget balance would be. But we're also keeping track of pressures, like what could possibly come up as a budget pressure. And I, I just remember looking at, if you added all of those up, I mean, it would just blow the budget out and you yeah. have this massive deficit. So this, this is the, and this is why you need to cull these proposals or, or really filter them out and then look for, you're talking about offsets. Now, I think in the States they call this pay-go. There's this idea that for, for a lot of your, if you're proposing new spending, first you should see if you can offset that or find a saving in your organisation. Is there something that you don't need to be spending on that you can fund this new proposal out of? We obviously run, you know, a similar mm. thing to uh, to that and the Treasury would, um, you know, would like to argue that they keep a pretty close eye on agencies spending all the time. Um, I think you can always keep a closer eye. I mean, I think, you know, governments are just so big um, that I think you need to run them, you know, both as a minister and at a public service level. You, you really want to kind of keep your finger on the pulse all the time. There will be something bubbling along um, that government has been doing a little bit unnecessarily because that's just what it's always been doing. Um, I said at the beginning that, um, you know, when I was quite young, I'd worked for a former state treasurer, uh, a very smart guy called David Hamill, who was a Rhodes Scholar and a very good treasurer. Um, he ran, and I think it was the last time it's hap- it happened in Queensland, a zero-based budgeting process. So uh, what happened was um, Labor, my party had been, our party had been um, re-elected after a period of time out of government. This was in about 1988. Um, and we wanted to get a real handle. The budget wasn't in terrible shape at the time, but um, we wanted to, frankly, really get into the guts of it. And so uh, David required agencies. As a new treasurer, he required agencies not to run through that standard budget process, which I just described, but in fact, to front up and justify everything they did. Now, that's it's terrifying for agencies. Um, and it's a huge body of, of work. Um, but I think it's a very good thing for a new government to do. Um, and so, you know, we did out of that process Frankly, we got a lot of agency resistance. Oh, you would. Um, yeah, as you might imagine. imagine. <laughs> so not everybody was all that excited yeah. Yeah, yeah. About, okay. um, about this proposition. But it is only through, you know, doing that deep dive from time to time. Now, you can't do it every year. Um, it would be too disruptive uh, for the business of, of government and it's simply too much work. But, um, you know, you do need to get into the guts of it from time to time. It was a really good thing to do. Um, so we don't do that always, but we do it sometimes. Um, the other thing that really guides, to come back to, to your point about, um, you know, you've got half a billion dollars and sort of $50 billion worth of great ideas. Um, and meanwhile, you know that that health health costs are blowing out, which is, you know, at a state government level, is just always what's mm. going on, just constantly. Um, you know, that's the real pressure. Um, the other thing that is really, that guides these decisions is, of course, that political parties have priorities but often will have made election commitments. So, um, you know, if it's the first budget after an election, you kind of already know, you know, you've, you've committed to doing things and you've got to do them. Um, well, sometimes, you know, we think of the sort of Abbott government in 2014, but by and large you're, you're obliged to, to do them. So, your priorities are to some extent decided and an agency that therefore turns up with bright new ideas that were not um, uh, referenced at the previous 
election, you know, unless unless you've walked into government and sort of stumbled upon a, a pot of gold, which is not usually how it works, um, you know, obviously those um, sort of unforeseen new ideas are not going to get much of a much of a go. So that is what sort of creates the the parameters to some extent, um, and those political considerations, particularly around, you know, what have we said we're going to do? That stuff will evidently be prioritised in the process. Yeah, yeah. On zero-based budgeting, there is a lot of support from that from public finance scholars, if I remember correctly. Uh, it is uh, it is a great idea. I, have, I wasn't aware that David Hamill did that in Queensland. I'll have to look into that. That's really interesting because like, one of the things you know, people may not be aware of is that so much of the spending is it's baked in in a way and it, it just keeps going on, right? So just looking at what I found on the Congressional Budget Office site for the US, so 2020 outlays $6.6 trillion, $4.6 trillion of those, so this is in 2020, were mandatory, $1.6 trillion discretionary. Now, they're outlays that come about because they're, well, they're ongoing. They've already been, they're approved to, uh, in an act of parliament or an act of the Congress, uh, and there are certain conditions for accessing that funding. It could be unemployment insurance. It, it's possibly defence spending that just keeps rolling on. So there's there's a lot of spending that, that's baked in. That That's, it's a really good observation on your part. It's a, it's a thousand percent true. I suspect, did you say that those figures were for the last... Yeah, because that actually sounds low to me. The 4.6 out of 6 or so, um, you know, so let's say it's two-thirds, I think is reasonably low in terms of um, non-discretionary expenditure. And I suspect that that's reasonably low because there's all this additional COVID spending. But in normal times, it would be more than two-thirds or so baked in. Um I remember when I was a reasonably young MP being on the uh, – I was on the uh, caucus, so my side of politics education committee, um, and we were considering – so when I was in government, we undertook some quite significant education reforms. We added an extra year of schooling in Queensland um, and we moved year seven from primary school to high school. Um, and we also kind of changed the rules um, – in order to essentially, there are a few exceptions, but basically require young people to stay at school right through to year 12. So it was a pretty serious round of education reform implemented over a number of years. And I remember sitting on this education committee thinking, oh, well, look, you know, the education department has a budget of, I actually can't remember what it was, but, you know, let's say $15 billion. It's a pretty fair chunk. Education is about, around about a quarter of the Queensland Mm. government's budget. Um, and I remember seeing this figure and, and sort of thinking, well, obviously we've got you know we've got loads of money to play with, mm. um, but in Queensland we have um, legislated um, class sizes, so you know it is just a matter of legislation that for every I can't actually remember the numbers, but you know it's about twenty five kids in lower prime, primary school to one teacher and about twenty seven or something in upper primary school so and it's compulsory to go to school so um if you've got a million school kids you know you've just got to have x number of teachers um and so a very high proportion of the education budget and i can't remember what the figure was but i think the director general said that it was kind of 90 percent. you know it was this very high proportion um is just wrapped up in teacher salaries now Every three or four years, um, there'll be an enterprise bargaining negotiation in which the government and the union will uh, negotiate en masse for how much teachers are going to be paid. Um, And there will be – those increments will then be locked in by agreement. So if you're three years into an EB, um, you simply know because the formulas are locked in that you as part of the education budget – have to spend this much on teacher salaries and therefore and, – and this population, you know, quite continues to be quite significant population growth in Queensland. So there'll also be that, you know, you've just 
got to build half a dozen new schools in growth areas. Um, and therefore, the figure that you have for um, discretionary, you know, the, the discretionary um, elements of, for instance, this education reform that we were trying to implement, you know, there was no money in the existing education budget for that. And so um, the then education minister, uh, Anna Bly, who later became the premier, um, simply had to go to, to the Cabinet Budget Review Committee and say, this is the education reform which I want to implement. Um, it had to come in new money. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, and then you get into that fight with, um, well, perhaps there's a greater imperative in health or wherever. But that is absolutely true. And I think I think the general public don't sort of understand this, you know. Yeah. So when the budget comes out and it's now at a state level um, up to more like $60 billion, you know, people think, Oh my gosh! There's just there's such a staggering amount of money. You know how can it be that this good idea, um, or even this incremental increase in an existing scheme, can't um, can't be funded? But you know, in a as I said, in a fifty billion dollar budget process, you might actually you're probably doing well if you've got half a billion dollars to play with, and if there's been um, unless you want to increase taxes, which is you know, a whole other drama. Um, and if it's in a time of crisis, like the global financial crisis or a pandemic, you know, then you've got a real problem because you, know, you really are left with the proposition that um, either you find savings by cutting funding at a time of crisis, which is kind of madly anti-Keynesian, mm. um, or you go into debt, um, and obviously that's where we are, you know, today. But it's a, it is a much, it is a much much tighter and frankly more stressful process than I think you know your average punter who just thinks government's made of money genuinely understands. Yeah, that's a good insight. Now, on the US budget, uh, I forgot one of the major items, of course, that's mandatory, it's going to be their social security payments. So uh, what would be the aged pension here in Australia? And we've got big issues going forward because of, well, growing costs of healthcare and also ageing the population. We've got a national disability insurance scheme that is... uh, well, there's a big debate over where you draw the line and, and that's that's a huge cost to the budget. That's overtaking Medicare. So, yeah, we've got issues in, in terms of managing the federal budget. And I want to come to the how you'd choose between different things. But before that, I just, I just want to go back to this funding envelope. So this is determined by macro sort of factors, isn't it? So with the state of the economy, it could be coal prices. Now, how do does the government... And I think I know the answer to this from my own experience, but it, it, it'd be interesting to know your experience, Rachel. Does the government choose the the high level strategy? It develops a budget strategy first. It figures out, okay, the surplus or deficit should be X billion dollars because this is what's appropriate in the current given current economic conditions. Is, is that what happens broadly? Basically, yes. So, the, in my experience, um, the I probably should have said this before, that the, the process will start with – and look, to some extent there's a rolling understanding of this in that, yes. and that the, um, the what we call the Cabinet Budget Review Committee, but any government the, – the feds call it um, the Expenditure Review Committee. You know, any, any government will have a budget committee um, and it never stops sitting. Mm. Um, so there is a rolling process of, of budget management and, and budget discipline, but the – preparation of the next year's budget will start with a briefing from the Treasury um, in which they'll give you a few key facts. Um, Those key facts will be um, this is how we're running on the existing budget uh, against our expectations and we and other Australian governments obviously run a a mid-year budget review process or update process. So, you know, at last year's budget, we we projected that we would break even, but as a result of high health costs and low coal royalties, we're now running it to, we're looking at it, we're projecting a deficit of $200 million 
million dollars, for instance. Just made that up, but it's probably pretty plausible. Um, so they'll give you that sort of how, how you're broadly tracking um, deficit or, or surplus-wise, and they'll also um, brief the committee, although you kind of should know this anyway, on the general health of the economy. So in the level of employment is always a really critical factor. They'll say, um, you know, employment's running at five and a half percent. The government might think that's too high and therefore early in the piece the government will say we want um, job creation measures, you know, either directly or indirectly to be a priority through this budget process. Um, so they'll give you an employment figure, they'll give you the inflation figure, um, and they'll also give you some general markers of uh, – other general markers of economic health. So, for instance, as I said, um, I was a, a cabinet minister and ultimately finance minister um, in the fairly immediate wake of the global financial crisis when um, – dwelling approvals were way down mm. because, you know, there was no confidence and people couldn't borrow money. And so that, you know, has some pretty serious implications for the economy, both, you know, lots of people work building houses um, and also with population growth like we have in Queensland, it sort of doesn't take much for um, uh, the cost of housing to, to go up. So that was of concern. Um, and so we knew, for instance, early in the budget process that we – may well want to look at some um, stimulatory measures to boost dwelling approvals because you um, you know you, you do have data to give you a bit of an indication of how 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 the construction sector is going to run so they'll give you some of that um, macro and sector by sector some of the key just simply some of the key economic indicators and so those considerations you know on one hand your um, you know, a budget process is, is not just about running the government. It's also about, um, and this remains the case, you know, even in a sort of more liberal world than we once had, still the case that the government's the biggest game in town. And so you are still through a budget process um, seeking to influence the general health of the economy um, with the measures that you implement. So, mm. um, you know, it's not just a matter of, this much money for education and this much money for health. It's a matter of this much money for education, this much money for health, um, and these, um, uh, you know, taxation or stimulatory measures to seek to influence um, the general health of the economy. Um, you know, both overall in terms of things like employment, but also in a sector by sector um, manner through, you know, oftentimes through specific um, incentive measures. Okay, right. So there's lots of balls in the air. Oh, there are, aren't <laughs> there? So you've got to take into account the the overall state of the economy and, and that affects the, the budget parameters. It affects how much revenue you, you, you have, but you're also saying that you might want to enact measures that influence the, the yep. economy. So this is yeah. where it gets So there's lots going on. Um, oh, that's yes. abs- you know, it's not just a, a matter of we want to build this highway, not this dam. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of all singing, all dancing. Mm. Um, but a, a good, you know, competent treasury will, you know, it's not like we haven't done this before. And yes. this is sort of why, um, well, A, obviously you want competent ministers. That's always better, just as a general rule. Yes. Um, but... It's also why um, institutional knowledge, um, particularly in your treasury, is inc- and sort of institutional memory is incredibly important. Um, you know, because they'll have they'll have pulled that lever before, mm. um, and they'll know if it works or it doesn't. Yeah, gotcha. So if you're listening and you're not in Australia, uh, if you're in the UK, then I think. You've probably got a similar process, similar institutions. I know in the US, the president prepares the budget. There's an office of management and budget which assists in in that the preparation of the budget, and and that would be the agency that's looking at all of the different proposals from different agencies. And the US Treasury and the Council for Economic Advisors, they'd be involved in advising on the macroeconomic situation, and then that goes before Congress and 
Congress does what Congress does and it argues about what's what goes into the budget. I'll have to have someone from the the US who's familiar with the uh, what goes on in DC sometime because I, I was just look, looking at it before this uh, conversation. I think, oh gee, that's that's incredibly complex uh, as as our process is to uh, to an extent. It, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, but that's uh, I think that's been a good explanation so far, Rachel. I think that's really good. Now, as someone who's who has sat around the table, like how do you assess all of these different proposals? How do you, what I mean? You were talking about having to take into account the state of the economy. Also, uh, it's got to do with the government's priorities, hasn't it? Very much. Very okay. Yeah. And how does it differ between? So you're from the Labor Party, and that's say the it's the sort of the left wing yeah, or centre sort of centre left centre left yeah yep. yeah and then the other party in Australia is the the Liberal Party national Liberal National Coalition which is centre right and if you want to compare it with what's in the US you could say that although these comparisons are, are tricky you could say that Labor's more sort of on the side of the Demo- or similar to Democratic Party. Liberal National Coalition, similar to Republicans, although we've got... There might be a bit of riot present. But yeah, yes, broad, yeah, yeah, broadly true. speaking, that's true. Well, well, I guess what's happened, what's changed in Australia is that, I mean, some the biggest deficits we've seen at the federal level and just some of the most incredible amount of spending I've ever seen, it's come from a nominally conservative government from Liberal National. Well, it would be, ro- be wrong of me to talk about hypocrisy on your podcast, <laughs> we won't, so I won't. Let's not go down that path, shall we? <laughs> no, it's just, I think it, it's something that's, uh, yeah, just absolutely extraordinary. I've, I've, I've mentioned it before on, on this podcast. That, yeah, what, what I'm trying, I guess what I want to ask is to what extent does the, the flavour of the government, the, the philosophy, does that affect the decisions you make? in the room on what goes into the budget? Look, absolutely. I – look, the, the politics of this has changed now. When I was – you know, I was first elected 20 years ago, so um, I was young then. Um, at the time, um, the argument in Australian politics was kind of this, oh, they're all the same, you know, it doesn't really matter mm. um, who's running the show – and I, I think that's probably less true now. Um, and I, I think, well, two things. One that it is that it's, it, it is probably less true now than it was. But I also kind of think it was, it was probably never true. Um, I think that, so if, if you think it's all the, all the same, I guess what I'm saying is if you think it's all the same, you're probably not watching very closely. Um, and I think that in Australian politics, you know, certainly in British or American politics, different parties will approach this process with different priorities. Um, and I also think that you have to, if you're going to sit around a cabinet table, you really do need to have um, a sophisticated and coherent uh what my family would call abiding philosophical base. You, you want to sort of see the world in a coherent manner and with a particular philosophical perspective because otherwise you don't have a consistent lens through which to judge these you know, myriad questions and myriad bids which are coming at you. My, my point is, you know, if you see that if, – if you see – 18 different agencies, each with four or five spending bids, and you regard them kind of all as individual decisions to be made in the absence of a philosophical or political framework, you're pretty quickly um, going to make decisions that are contradict one another and you're going to explode your own brain um, and you're going to come up with a government agenda that's that's not very coherent. Mm. So... Um, so I do think that it's important that this is the problem with populism, right? It, it's important that governments have coherent and consistent sort of philosophical views of of the world. So a centre left uh, government will come at it with a prior a set of priorities that is um, 
by and large around social protection, um, will be less willing to cut the health, the public health budget, will be by and large more interested in education reform. You know, we've now sadly got this sort of partisan schism over climate change. I don't think that should be a partisan issue. I think it's simply a matter of science. But, you know, it is fair to say uh, in Australian politics that a centre-left government will be looking for more new climate change measures than will a conservative government. Um, And a conservative... Now, Queensland might be a bit different from everywhere else in this regard. You know, traditionally, the because the National Party here are the dominant party rather than the Liberal Party, um, it's fair to say that a conservative government sitting around the budget table will um, by and large look to prioritise law and order measures. Um, they'll look to prioritise capital works around regional development. You know, they'll, they'll look more favourably upon um, a dam in a less developed part of the state than will a Labor government. Um, in the context of the current debate, um, they'll be far less willing to look at climate change measures. Um, and there is some experience in Australian politics, although not so much at a state level, that you know they may well be more willing um, to uh, limit public health spending and seek to push some of the costs back onto individuals. So, you know, a Medicare co-payment or um, cuts to the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, that that kind of thing. So there are these, you know, there is a difference on that sort of social protection to individualism um, schema and and that will be reflected in uh, what is favourably looked upon um, by governments of different flavours. Yeah, so there's certainly, yeah, so there, there are going to be some differences for sure. That point about capital works, I think, in, is important in Queensland. I remember when I spoke with Joan Sheldon, who was a uh, Liberal, Liberal Party National Treasurer, Treasurer yep. of, of Queensland yep. back in the late 90s, she was saying that they tried to move the budget more toward capital spending rather than operating spending. Yep. So the like their critique of the other side would be, oh, they spend too much on public servants yeah. or they're beholden to the unions and yes. so they, they just yeah. hire too many public servants. And yeah. so they've got that sort of philosophy. At the federal level, the the coalition would be more willing to push for tax cuts yep. and uh, and also po- possibly provide assistance to small business, money for for uh, yeah for the business sector and uh, and possibly what we saw during the the recent pandemic with the the JobKeeper program, the scale of it, just how generous it was, the also the cash flow boost, uh, that, I mean, maybe that's, that could only have been implemented by a Liberal national government. It was a Nixon goes to China type of thing, <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? I <laughs> it, it really is pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's extraordinary stuff. I'm sure it's killing them. Um, you know, I'm sure they sort of can't sleep at night. Um, uh Perhaps I'd argue that the um, the philosophy that like it, it frankly to get into a political point, you know, it's pretty hard to watch as a Labor person who, you know, was engaged in capital work spending and um, and other things to kind of keep us out of recession through the global financial crisis. You know, with these people kind of baying about waste of public money, to then have, um, you know, all of that fairly spectacularly abandoned, um, but. I do think we should, you know, it, it simply remains the, the case that there are those philosophical differences. It does underlie um, a general, you know, the general approach to budgeting. You know, we're obviously in a sort of topsy-turvy world where, mm. um, you know, certainly a, a federal conservative government, you know, has just, well, and to be fair, was doing it even before the, um, you know, had had doubled Australia's federal more than doubled Australia's federal deficit even before the pandemic came along. So there's been this kind of long-standing um, sort of cognitive dissonance that um, this federal government has sort of talked about debt and deficit crisis um, whilst 
um, kind of abandoning budget discipline um, even before the GFC and oh, even even before the pandemic and certainly now. Um, but I'm not going to say that they're you know they're wrong. Um, you know it's a crisis and you have to do what you what you have to do. Um, and if the federal you know if our federal government now had not instituted um, you know reasonable wage subsidies for people through the pandemic, there would have genuinely been. Um, enormous suffering, um, you know, real suffering of people in our community. And I think it's fair to say it would have taken us, you know, if people kind of fall onto the scrap heap, it it takes a longer time to recover. So, you know, yes, there's a point about sort of abandoning what you claim to believe in, but there's a bigger point. Um, but the bigger point is that there was an imperative to do that and it was the right thing to do. Yes, I think some assistance was definitely needed. Just on the, like you talked about the years before, I mean, they would argue that, well, there were deficits to begin with and so there, and we were talking about just how much spending is built in and, uh, and that also probably point to the fact that many of their savings measures were blocked in the Senate so that that would be their defence. And um, just on the, yeah, on, the, on the federal budget, like, like we were talking about differences between the parties, but there's still there is agreement around a lot of things that are really costly to the budget and will the the cost will continue to increase. So there's general agreement around this NDIS, which mm. is an expansion of our welfare state. So I've I found that quite extraordinary. I remember when this was being developed in the early 2000s. The initial idea was to just make sure that people who are catastrophically injured in an accident and, and aren't covered by another type of, uh, like workers' comp or workers' compensation insurance or third-party insurance, they get picked up, mm. they don't fall through the cracks. But then suddenly you know, it's it's much more expansive and it has bipartisan support and likewise there's support for a whole range of measures which are, are costly to the budget. Um, so, yes, yeah, I, I was just asking questions, just, just wondering about just what the impact of it all is and... Uh, I suppose it's difficult to say. <laughs> Look, I um, before I became a minister, I was parliamentary secretary for disability mm. services um, at the time when the NDIS was first proposed. Um, look, I remember the meeting at which it was first proposed. Um, Bill Shorten, who beca- later became the opposition leader, was um, the federal parliamentary secretary for disability services. So we both had these kind of, you know, in the scheme of executive office, these are, are not the um, most lofty positions. But I remember sitting around a, a table at a um, ministerial council meeting at which Bill Shorten rolled up and, and proposed this. And I was staggered because um, everybody knew disability services in Australia were not in a very strong state. It was very well known that um, if you had a severe disability um, or really even worse, if you had a child with a severe disability, um there would not be sufficient services available um, for person to have a good quality of, of life. Um, I, I used to have, and I realise we're sort of diverting onto this, but it's interesting, um, a, a number of times as a Member of Parliament I had, before the NDIS, um, I had families with um, teenage children with severe disabilities um, threatened to abandon their children to the state, come to my office um, and say, we can't do it, we just can't do it anymore. Um, we can't both work. Um, we you know, are going crazy. We are being bankrupted. Um, there's not enough support for us to be able to care for our own child. We love our child. Um, you know, it's not that we don't like them, but we simply cannot continue um, and frankly, that was just the way it was and there was no real prospect of meaningful reform because everyone knew that um, actually providing, you know, the level of funding that would be needed to meet those needs would be quite staggeringly expensive. So, you know, 10 or 15 years later, um, that's what we're now, you know, that is mm. what we're now trying to do. Um, no one should be really surprised that, it's, it's very, very expensive. But to go to your point, I think we have this sort of funny debate in Australia that in in many we, – we, I think the way I envisage it is that we sort of 
we imagine ourselves as being kind of caught between the European model and the American model. We we oftentimes have an expectation of sort of European style um, levels of social protection and social service, um, but we think we're sort of a, a, a you know free and liberal place. We don't really have an expectation around European levels of taxation. Mm. And both Medicare and the NDIS, um, you know, find themselves kind of caught in the gap in that, yeah, it's really expensive providing um, this stuff to people. I I think that philosophically um, the Conservative parties in Australia, you know, I think it really kind of sticks in the craw to pay for this stuff. Um, but I think on both in both fields, um, the Australia, it's simply the politics of it. The Australian public have a pretty strong view um, that Medicare, um, established by a, a Labor government, um, you know, a person who's mentored me, Bill Hayden, uh, was the Federal Health Minister in the Whitlam government when it was established, that both Medicare um, and now the National Disability Insurance Schemes um, are um, established parts of the social framework and that they're kind of not to be mucked around with. And so we do get into these, you know, difficult questions of we, we, we do have to find how, find how we are going to fund them in an ongoing way um, because I don't think that the, the general public will cop their uh, diminution. But what we've got is expensive schemes which are part of the social fabric um, the costs of which, are, particularly in healthcare, are going up and likely to continue to go up. Um, and we have a federal government who's, which is philosophically uncomfortable with that. And at present, from a you know from an existing deficit position, which as I said was you know, and you make the point that some of this stuff was built in, but which was well entrenched over sort of seven years of government, mm. you know, even before the pandemic. So from an existing entrenched deficit position with spending measures which the, the public regards as not being negotiable, you know, is now proposing um, well, and has legislated a very significant round of tax cuts going forward. You know, there are some things about budgeting which are kind of not that complicated you know you listen to the political debate and it it can become quite technical but um you know the 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 position that where we are right now is that australia will go into very significant entrenched deficit and debt unless um either um we move away from those tax cuts or increase taxes in other areas um or we cut those um, expensive social programs. Now, there's an argument, well, we can fix it with growth. Um, but, you know, my experience of sitting around a budget table, and, I, I, you know, this would be anyone's experience of sitting around a budget table, it's not a partisan point. You know, particularly at a national level, you can do some stuff to influence it. Mm. But the world economy is the world economy. So, um, you know, the, the, the federal Expenditure Review Committee doesn't get to decide we'll have 10% growth this year and that'll that'll mm. chalk everything up. Um, so, you know, you get a political argument of we'll fix it with growth, but it's, it's, it's not real. Um, so, you know, some of these issues are actually not that complicated. Mm. <laughs> you know, some of this stuff, we've, you and I have talked a lot about the sort of yeah. details of the budget process, um, but some of this stuff is actually kind of pretty black and, and white and we do have to understand the macro um, before we, you know, get into the tin tax of how do you decide between this and that. Yeah. Just on those tax cuts, I think this is an example where the political philosophy of the government will influence their decision because I think they're dedicated to those tax cuts because it, uh, well, they believe that, that they help promote aspiration, they're, uh, they're, they're a reward for people working hard, that sort of thing. So... They, I think they would be reluctant to, to, uh, to not to go ahead with those That's tax right. cuts. These are the tax cuts that are for higher income earners, I think, aren't they? That the, you're talking well, about. They're, 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 you know, they've really sort of flattened the income tax scales in Australia. So we will have, and they are legislated. Um, mm. And it's my recollection that you know the ALP signed up to them. So I'm, I'm trying to make a sort of general point here. I'm not, 
actually mm. trying to get get into the guts of a partisan yeah. argument. Um, but you know what we do have going forward is um, a, a flatter and less less progressive tax scale. Um, the government's argument was that um, actually they were just sort of paying back bracket creep. Um, so that that mm. obviously doesn't apply to the flattening of the tax yeah. scale, but that um, over time, you know, tax revenue was going to increase as people's as the tax table stayed the same, but um, inflation drove up wages. Um, that's now not really going to happen because um, mm. you know we haven't got wages growth in in this country in the way that we might have envisaged. We would have envisaged, um, and so what we have is a um, recipe for structural deficit. Mm. Simple as that. Um, and, you know, you started this interview by saying, um, you know, by talking about debt and deficit and kind of saying at some point these chickens will come home to roost. Um, now, it would be lovely for everybody if um, we just had spectacular economic growth and that fixed all the problems without um, any governments having to to make any hard decisions um but that's not going to happen um you know we've now got a fairly significant although by world standards you know it's not killing us so we've, we've got more debt than we used to although we're not about to go broke um and we've got a a legislated recipe for structural deficit in a period of um unexpected economic uncertainty. So there is really some hard stuff coming up. Um, it's not, you know, I don't think we need to kind of have a flap. We've managed things um, pretty competently by and large so far. Um, you know, Australia is a country which has um, engaged in um, really successful reform in the past. So this is not a problem that we can't fix. Mm. Um, but it is a problem which we is on the horizon and we and we know it's there. Um, and we will have to, you know, someone who's sitting around budget tables, both at state and federal levels in the years ahead, um, we know what they're going to be confronted with because it's baked in now. Yeah. So I guess a, a conservative government would be more willing likely to try to tackle that by saving money, by tightening up entitlement programs. I, I'd i say that they'd be very reluctant to, to touch that scheduled tax cut, whereas uh, if it's a if it, a Labor government, they'd probably be more, although you're saying that they actually support yeah, that tax they, cut. Yeah, they, they have right, agreed to. Okay. So there's a, there's a third round yeah. that's still questioned. Right, It's going to okay. be hard for anyone. Yeah. I mean, I don't sort of want to... Yeah. Um, you know, there are too many unknowns to kind of say True. exactly how this is going to play out politically. Um, but, um, you know, I am, I am saying there's some pretty tough stuff on the horizon. And, you know, I think, you know, what that all that means is that, um, you know, the punters should be sort of alert to um, and engaged with um, the problem going, going forward. Um, yeah. You know, it really is as simple as it, it really is as simple as that. For now, that's all we can do. Exactly. Okay. Sorry, we've gone heaps over time, Rachel. Have you got time for one more question? Sure. You've got to get going. Oh, okay. So you and I both have taught short courses through UQ International Development, where we've taught groups from Indonesian Ministry of Finance, for example, or, the, or their Economic Development Ministry, Bapanas. What do you think we as Australians or people who've worked in, or you've worked at the, the most senior level, and I've sort of worked in the the uh, the engine room of the, the treasury in Canberra. Uh, what do you think we have to offer people from other countries, particularly from emerging economies? It's a great question. I um I, I love the work that you and I both do through UQ International Development. Um, I think I like it because um I, I'm a real you know there, there's a sort of real question about Australian identity. You know, are we a sort of um are we a British outpost down here? Are we um you know, genuinely a multicultural place. I'm in the Australia as a part of Asia camp. And so um, for me, you know, these programs are often for the government of Indonesia and other Southeast Asian governments. And so, you know, for me being an Australian and being, um, you know, getting the opportunity in a hands-on way to work with our neighbours is just a tremendous mm. joy. Um, so I love that stuff. I think what we bring 
um, well, there are two things. There's what we learn and there's what we bring. Um, what we learn is a, you know, is all about a region of tremendous cultural richness and great economic opportunity that's right there. Um, what we bring is that while Australians um, like to chuck off at our governments, um, you know, we're actually pretty competent. We're actually quite – Australia is very well run um, and we have very strong institutions and we have um, strong institutional processes. So, um, you know, whereas many of our neighbouring governments um, – they're younger countries, you know, Indonesia, 1945. Um, they're, they're younger countries um, with a higher level of complexity. I mean, it's absolutely true of Indonesia, with, which is an incredibly mm. diverse and complicated place. Um, and so sometimes um, their institutions are weaker and their processes are um, less robust. So I think that what we get to bring – um, and I hope that we bring it with sort of thoughtfulness and humility, is um, quite simply practical experience in which we listen to the challenges they're facing um, and then we, we say this is how we do it um, and we can make suggestions which uh, help those governments to you know, run their budgets and other things. Mm. I mean, you and I have both um, dealt with cases, for instance, in Indonesia where, you know, the public servants get paid by people going out with backpacks mm. um, with cash. Yeah. Because, you know, the banking system is is less well evolved. And so um, I think that when we explain – so I've taught courses on budgeting, on infrastructure financing, but also on risk, risk management, um, risk-based internal audit things like that. And I think that our really practical understanding of how um, the political and public service systems interact um, and quite simply how our processes um, and um, sort of checks and balances around governance work, I think is genuinely useful to um, our neighbours. And I hope it is because I really like dealing with them. Yeah. Same here. Okay. Rachel Nolan, Executive Director of the McKell Institute. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Gene. Okay. That's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.